Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 10th. We are creeping away from 2020, but COVID still continues to shape and reshape and revolutionize our lives. I'm broadcasting from the West Coast of the United States in California, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, the home, of course, of big tech. And one of big tech's biggest companies announced yesterday that the nine to five workday was dead and that everyone's going to be able to work from home. Some people will consider that good news. We, they won't have to go into the Salesforce Tower, which looms like a an offensive phallus over, over San Francisco. And you see these images of supposedly happy people working inside the Salesforce Tower. I don't know how happy people really are there. Uh, and of course, you won't have to see Mark Benioff, the, at least to some people's mind, the iconic Salesforce CEO guy, the guy who last year woke up one morning after having a massage and decided he was going to buy Time magazine. Um, work, though, and the future of work is is one of the great features in this show. And for some people, the Salesforce announcement might be seen as rather eerie because you still have to work for Salesforce, whether you have to go into the Salesforce tower or not. Uh, my guest today on the show, I think, is one of the world's leading critics of work itself. Uh, Robert Ringham is the author of I'm Out, How to Make an Exit, a book about essentially leaving the workforce. Uh, Robert or Rob uh, talking to me from Glasgow, and I'm not going to make any jokes about a city where everyone's out of work. Rob, um, have I described you correctly? Are you a critic of the idea of work in our 21st century capitalist world? Yes. Certainly, uh, I think you did say something like I'm one of the world's leading critics on, uh, you know, I, I think I might dispute that. I think there's probably greater thinkers out there and greater <laughs> minds working on the problem than me. I was trying to be kind, Rob. Um, <laughs> well, you're being very if you're kind. Not, if you're I'm not one of the world's greatest critics, then why are you on the show? Well, <laughs> I'm on the show precisely because you asked me to be on the show. I guess maybe if that was under the... Uh, the assumption that I was one of the world's greatest thinkers and greatest well, critics. Don't, don't pop my bubble, Rob. Anyway, you're you're an interesting critic. I, 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 I mean, that in all seriousness, uh, you're not just the author of "I'm Out." You're the longtime editor, I think, even founder of New Escobar. <laughs> How do I pronounce that? New Escopologist well, well, magazine. We, uh, yes. With my English accent, I say escapologist, but I know a lot of Americans say escapologist. So, uh, Right, so uh, sort of related to escargo, es escopologist. So you're <laughs> you're an expert on escaping from the nine to five 
uh, work uh, schedule. So I'm assuming that you wouldn't be a great fan of working for Salesforce, whether or not you work in, in their tower. Mm, I don't even know what Salesforce is. You're using that expression yeah. a lot, Salesforce. Is that a huge American Yeah, Rob, you're the only person in the world who doesn't know what Salesforce is. It's like a mm. $400 billion company that mm. controls our lives. It's not quite Amazon or Google or Facebook, but it's the next level down. Have you ever mm. heard of this Mark Benioff character? Never heard of him, no. He's four, he's, I don't even know if $4 billion is a lot. It doesn't even seem... $400 billion. That's almost a trillion. Mm. It seems like a lot. You'll notice that there is a chapter in my book about uh, avoiding media as well. So if Salesforce <laughs> is some kind of big thing that everybody's talking about on the West Coast at the moment, it's, it's precisely the kind of thing that will just be Have completely Have you heard of the internet, Rob? Indeed, yes. Uh, yes, this is something I'm struggling to use right now. As you can see, you were complaining before we started recording. You were saying, oh, your, your screen is so grainy and it looks so sort of dark. Uh, but actually, I mean, in this room, I'm looking and it's perfect. It's perfectly light. But this is something to do with the internet. This is internet light that you're seeing and it's not very good. One of the things I liked about, Rob, about your book is that you fall back on one of history's great characters, Harry Houdini, as mm. the inspiration and perhaps the intellectual anchor of your book, the expert on escape. Uh, mm. what, what's, so, uh, what's, so, what's so attractive about Houdini? Mm. I first started reading about Houdini back when I was, uh, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So I'm not actually really doing stand-up anymore. I, a lot well, of you're sitting down now, right? Well, I'm Sorry, literally can, sitting down I, now. That's I, I right. I'm a, a sit-down comic, and I'm I'm fine with that actually as a job title. I'll be a sit-down comic, so I write a lot of comedy and I write a lot of humour. Uh, but back then, I was doing a lot of stage work, and so I was studying the the craft of that. So I was reading about uh, magicians, dancers, you know, different kind of performers who weren't just stand-up comedians, because what a lot of comedians don't do, they you know they they think it's all about the gags, you know, and it is, but it's also about the way you present yourself, the way you can use the body and move and stance, you know. So I was looking into all these, you know, great stage presences of history and Harry Houdini just became one of my favorite ones. But as I was thinking about him, I was thinking, what, why was he so popular? Because actually he, he really was a, a worldwide phenomenon. He was huge. He was just sort of the biggest act of his day, but his actual act was very strange. So we talk about escapology and escape artistry now. We just know what it is. Uh, but, but the idea of a, a man escaping from a box, like when you come down to brass tacks, it's an extremely odd thing. It's the kind of thing. The, the other thing a lot of people don't know is you quite, quite often wouldn't see him doing it. So if you were coming to see Houdini escape from handcuffs, actually it would be, be, it would be behind a screen. So he'd be struggling, picking the locks from behind a screen in order to obscure his process, uh, in order to hide the secrets of how he did it. So people weren't even literally seeing him escape a lot of the time, and they'd bring out like a, a brass band or an orchestra or something to entertain the audience while he was kind of struggling away. So I'm thinking, so why was this strange, almost fringe art form so popular? And the conclusion I came to really is that it's actually kind of a metaphor. So Houdini was big at the very beginnings of the American consumer economy. Um, and, and so you've got basically people who were, until recently, farmhands essentially coming to terms with these ideas of huge bureaucracies. So I don't think these bureaucracies were perhaps on the scale of Salesforce, you know, uh, but uh, there were certainly the, the, the biggest organizations and most alienating organizations that America had, had ever seen.
so suddenly people who were once very attached to the land were suddenly introduced to things like recorded music and private car ownership and frozen food and big bureaucracies. And it was just this, this whole new world. It was the world of the consumer economy. So uh, um, to, uh, to borrow from uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Houdini of the 18th century, uh, man was born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and actually that, that, phrase was, that phrase was updated actually nicely by um, a writer who had a pseudonym called himself Tiresias. And he said, man is uh, born free, but is everywhere in trains, just to update it to the, uh, to, you yeah, know, the modern good, problem. Yeah. Although that, you know, uh, then Houdini would have to be pictured in, cha uh, in trains this way. At least we see Houdini in chains. Um, you have a nice image in the beginning of the book, uh, Rob, mm. of the, the, the metaphorical chains that we're born into, uh, the lock, uh, bureaucracy, work, consumerism, our own stupid brains. Talk me through this mm. lock, this padlock that you see as the, the image of modern life. Yeah, I think that is quite important, actually, in explaining exactly how I see the problem. So uh, these four issues, bureaucracy, consumerism, work, and you know, I've called it our own stupid brains, but what I mean is psychology, personal psychology and the way we see the world. These four things, they're all interconnected. They all lock into each other. And uh, it's actually kind of a perfect system. So for example, two of the biggest mechanisms in that diagram are work and consumerism. They reinforce each other perfectly. So the idea is, um, you need to earn money in order to spend money. So the two things are completely interlocked. I think my ideas about um, consumerism, somebody has actually told me that they're actually a little bit quaint because I was kind of thinking, mm, you, you know, I, I want to I wanna go shopping, so therefore I'll go and earn money. But actually, it, it could even be the other way around. It could be, um, you know, um, uh, you know, things are on credit, so I'm actually working to pay for money I've already spent. But either way, the two things perfectly um, support each other. And actually, there's also an economic position uh, that I learned about when I was researching the book originally, that economically speaking, work and consumerism are actually the same exact thing. It's kind of obvious, really, when you stop and think about it, that, you know, your work is someone else's consumerism and vice versa. So if you think you're consuming, you're going out and buying, let's say you're going to Starbucks to buy a coffee, that obviously is someone else's work because there's the barista, there's the people who grind the beans, there's the people who own the business. So all of these things are just completely interlocked. So the idea of going shopping in a mall, um, that's not just consumerism, that's also work. So yeah, the, uh, the interlocking, you say, you mm. mean that on lots of levels. Let's go back to our what you call our own stupid brains, which is mm -hmm. more than just the brains. It's our mental state. It's our guilt-ridden mental state. You locate the crisis of work, I think, and you're, you're certainly not the first person or the last person to observe this in the 16th and 17th centuries. You argue in the book, the 16th and 17th centuries saw the Protestant Reformation and one of the most profound changes to the way work was seen in the Western world. We are still today enthralled to the Protestant work ethic, the, the work ethic, of course, Rob, that uh, Max Weber defined as the origins of capitalism. We had a, uh, a psychologist on the show um, recently, Roy Richard Grinker, a historian of, of mental illness, 
who locates one of the, the, the core historical foundations of mental illness in this obsession we have with work and the idea of work as salvation. Mm -hmm. um, do you think work is quite literally making us crazy, this sense of work as virtue, of making us feel guilty? Exactly. Yes, precisely. Because it's the idea that work is virtuous no matter what. Uh, so let's say you're in a low wage job. It's not actually providing the solution to you. It's not actually getting you out of poverty or, or helping you materially. You're just kind of working maybe to pay for your living expenses, maybe not even that. But there is this idea that actually what you're doing is tremendously noble. There's this idea that, oh, well, at least he or she is working, you know, um, it's kind of an inherent good in its own right, according to that doctrine. Uh, so it's not actually true. And if you want to, um, it's not true, like even if you just give it like a moment's thought, it's just not, it is simply not good. Because if you think about somebody working uh, in an office that uh, is serving an, an organization whose output is malign, you know, they're, they're producing plastics that are polluting the world, for, for, for example, uh, it's obvious that your work is not virtuous. You know, it, it's, there's nothing virtuous simply about the act of actually, you know, pulling a lever or, or typing on a keyboard. It's not inherently virtuous because you could be typing something that's completely hateful that is going to cause problems in the world. Or, you know, the lever you're pulling could be connected to some big machine that's actually polluting and causing a lot more harm than good. So or you could just be working in a, in, in, in a, in a phallic-shaped <laughs> building in San Francisco selling other companies software, right? Which is it's exactly. not bad, but it's certainly not good. Yeah, exactly. Um, but at the other end of it as well, like people talk about, uh, it's quite often described as you're a cog in a machine, like that's the worst thing you can possibly right. be. But at the same time, it, I would say, well, it depends on what the machine is. Uh, it just happens that under capitalism, unfortunately, uh, we stimulate markets. We don't only provide things that actually are needed. It's not just about basic food production. It's not just about clothes and shelter. We've gone way, way beyond that. You know, that, that sort of, the idea that that's what we're providing is sort of 200 years old. You know, what we're providing now is wholly unnecessary and actually it's ruining the world. It, it, it's not virtuous for the individual. It's not dignified for the individual. And actually, it's melting the polar ice caps and all right. the rest of the world. And I, a lot of people who have appeared on the show uh, over the last year would support you. We had the uh, environmental activist Hannah Tester, teenager, um, who is committed, who, who spent her life fighting the plastics industry. Uh, Rob, it seems to me for intellectual inspiration, you go back before the Protestant Revolution. You go back to an antiquity. And you find some inspiration with Epicurus uh, and the Stoics. What is it about Stoicism and Epicureanism that um, that inspired you and that we might return to to make sense of escaping being the cogs of 21st century uh, post-industrial capitalism? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the Epicurus and the Stoics, they had different ways of realizing, but realizing it in the world, but they had very similar worldviews. So it was all about um, reducing suffering in life. And the Stoics way of doing it was, um, it was about fortification, you know, you can kind of fortify yourself and become a tough guy, you know, so I'm not going to be um, easily wounded by this, the, the, the suffering that the world imposes on me, that would be Stoicism. 
the Epicurists, who actually uh, I kind of prefer them, uh, they're all, they really have a pleasure principle. So it's um, pleasure is the ultimate good. And actually pleasure is also quite simply arrived at. So when you realize that uh, actually pleasure really is very simple and it's also natural, what you need is basic food, you know, tasty food, you want sweetness, you want the salty flavor, uh, but also just basic human biology inspires pleasure, you know, sex is pleasure. Uh, but actually capitalism has and the consumer economy has completely um, commodified those things. So they said, oh, if you want to have pleasure, you need to buy this product. You need the beauty product or the, uh, you know, battery operated sex toy or something in order to have this pleasure. But you don't at all. These things are completely uh, basic, you know, and that was kind of what Epicurus was saying way back in antiquity. It was these things are simple. It's simple, simple pleasures. That's what we should be looking for. Not highly socialized, highly complicated things. So that the best of um, truth in that, I think. So, yeah, he was talking. Yeah, and you, you're, you're years. quite. Yeah, you're in some ways. Whilst you sort of embrace a kind of Epicureanism, you're also a little self-critical. You say you write in the book. I've often wondered if escapologists are bad citizens. Striking mm -hmm. out on your own seems to involve a degree of turning your back on society. Do you think that there's a danger in Epicureanism of this excessive individualism? You're, you're fighting a highly individualist system with your own version of individualism. Is that fair? Mm, I think that's a fair criticism. And Epicurus himself, he literally left the city. So I don't do that, actually. I think I believe in a kind of half and half approach. Uh, I, I don't remember to what extent I described that in the book, but uh, it's actually a very sort of Eastern philosophy. It's this idea that uh, the best... Um, recluse is the city recluse you know it's this half and half character right. who, who lives you know he doesn't have to come down from the mountains from the monastery to be with people he actually lives with people all the time because that's that's the best way to be you're attached to your community and everything you do is connected to your community and to the environment as well so i think that that's that's the sweet spot that's the best way to be um but no, Epicurus, Epicurus did literally leave the city. He set up a commune for himself and his friends out in the countryside where they could practice these simple pleasures, these little virtues. You know, they subsisted on olives and red wine and pure rainwater, spring water, basically. And they said, these are the things. And, but don't forget, even Epicurus, he said that one of the great things is friendship. So that right. was why he took, even he took his people with him. So yeah, it, it's, I say it's semi-fair then actually to say, yeah, Epicurus was kind of an individualist. He was sort of against the, um, the, the, the prevailing social mores of the time. Speaking Just of uh, friendship, perhaps even love, we had a fellow critic of work on your, on the show last week, another very inspiring young woman, Sarah Jaffe, work won't love you back in which she locates love i think as the way that we can reconnect with one another she even quotes the italian feminist uh silvia federici love is the great anti anti-individuality it's the great communizer there wasn't a lot of love in your book it is is it wasn't missing but it wasn't there either would you agree with sarah jaffe that the way that the, the antidote to our to, to to being cogs in in the post-industrial machine uh, of a, of a world full of bullshit jobs is love. Yeah, I, I agree with it a hundred percent. If perhaps I didn't, 
if perhaps I didn't articulate it quite in those terms in my book, it's perhaps because I'm constantly uh, attacked by people who say, oh, you're, you're, you know, you have these hippie values, basically. So I was trying to make it kind of palatable to people who kind of don't want to hear that. Funnily enough, I remember around the time I wrote the book, it was 2015. It originally came out under the, the title Escape Everything in 2016. And in that year, uh, Russell Brand uh, wrote this book and he had this podcast thing called The Trues. And he, in that, he would use these terms. You know, he would say, oh, it's about love. You know, it's about loving your fellow uh, human being. And I think that actually he was quite a presence. People forget that he was really, you know, speaking to you out of so many devices in those days. Uh, and I think maybe he and perhaps people like him have kind of changed the discourse a little bit where perhaps it is easier now to talk about things like love, I guess. But no, what, what that that quote was absolutely perfect. And I wouldn't... Well, let's put it back on the that. screen. Sylvia Federici, I actually need to get on the show. Uh, to quote uh, something else she, she wrote, uh, we want to call work what is work so that ev eventually we might rediscover what is love. Yes. If only you could have an army of lovers, that army would be invincible. So yeah, so Silvia Federici, I guess, is, is, is a piece of your argument, even if you don't mention her. Another person we mm -hmm. had on the show, uh, Rob, recently, was the anthropologist James Sussman, who has written a history of work, uh, a deep, uh, the book's called Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Unlike you, though, he doesn't go back to the Stoics or the Epicureans. He's an anthropologist and he looks at the Jew, uh, Juhawanozi people of the Kalahari as our inspiration for discovering life before industrial work. Do you think there's some truth in that? Uh, Anthropolog anthropological approach of, of going back to look at pre-industrial tribes in Africa? I do, yeah, because as I was saying earlier, in, in relation to Houdini and the birth of the consumer economy, uh, the consumer economy has changed everything. It's completely uh, made it an impersonal process. Uh, so the idea of going back to the land is always interesting and the best way to look at it. In fact, workers been seen differently in different epochs all, all through history. So you were talking earlier about the Protestant work ethic. That was a, a huge change. You know, it's not natural or normal to think that toiling under the Protestant work ethic is the only way, or even that capitalism or individualism are the only way. And the joy is when you do go through history, you see all these different modalities. So if you go back to the ancient world, work was just seen as a sin. You know, it's this idea, not a sin, but it's kind of like a punishment almost, where, you know, it's you do it because you have to do it. Uh, they would give the work to slaves, you know. No, no, no one's saying, well, let's bring that back. But it is kind of historically revealing that, you know, people just didn't want to do it. Whereas now it's seen as in, inherently uh, important to who you are as a person. It's, you, you know, being able to say at a party, oh, I'm a police officer or I'm a pineapple importer or I'm a comedian, whatever it is, uh, that's seen as being completely central to your identity. Whereas, of course, that wasn't true in antiquity at all so yeah absolutely yeah, you were, and, and this would actually go back to the issue of citizenship because uh when they had parties in 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 antiquity particularly in athens uh they would speak as citizens you wouldn't ask what they did you you would ask about their common membership of of of, of a political body yes Let's talk about you know you we, we took we began talking about houdini 
mm-hmm. um, who was an escapologist, the original escapologist. So how are we going to escape this? Escape Roots is part three of your book. Um, we had uh, Scott Santons, one of the, the great pioneers of the universal basic income on our show. You talk about these types of schemes that the state pay people basically to do whatever they like. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that escapology, the way to fix this, is through the state, through things like universal basic income? Well, you've already said that escapology is a kind of individualistic way of doing things, and it kind of is. And I've always seen that actually as an indictment. So escapology is not the ideal thing. What we would have is um, a system where escapology just wasn't required. Uh, you know, if, if actually everybody could do the work they wanted to do and that work was meaningful and it was not harming the environment, then we wouldn't need what I'm talking about as escapology. So that is actually the solution to solving it society-wide so that we don't need escapology anymore is exactly that. So I know who you're talking about. I know Scott a little bit and I know his work. I think he's really good. Uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income. I'm not an an economist, but it, it does strike me as kind of an obvious solution. It's give people the basics, make sure that um, shelter and food are inalienable human rights. Uh, and then you can kind of do away with all of these pointless bureaucratic jobs because people won't be economically bullied into doing them anymore. They won't think, oh, oh, I better get a job because if I don't get a job, I won't be able to live. That entire that entire thought process just won't exist anymore. It's going to because everybody will be basically catered for at that point. What's important now, though, is doing the actual. Uh, number crunching on this and doing it right because something I find troubling about it is how many proponents there are of UBI on the political right. Some people kind of say, oh, well, that's good because it's uh, it's going to bring left and right together. It's not a left-right issue, actually. Um, but it's the, it's the idea of... I think it's appealing to a lot of libertarians because it, it, there's a possibility that we're going to just get rid of the entire current welfare state. We're going to get rid of pensions. We're going to get rid of unemployment insurance in order to fund this. Uh, so if we're going to do that, we absolutely have to get it right. We have to get the numbers right. So here in the UK, for example, it was in the Green Party manifesto in, I think, 2015, uh, but they just didn't really crunch the numbers properly. And their spokespeople, whenever they were really grilled about this on serious news shows, they didn't really have the answers. So, so, so that's the thing we need to... Well, let's then talk about... So, so, so I take that as a sort of a little bit of a suspicion from the left of this libertarian escape route. Uh, Another escape route, which you seem to believe in wholeheartedly, is escaping consumption. You said, you write, consumerism is the main reason we end up working so much. If we work to provide ourselves with the basics, food, shelter, clothes, the odd treat, money wouldn't be a problem. We'd either work a two-day week or simply retire with a bulging purse at the age of 33. So is this really essentially the 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 the, the route, uh, the strategy, Rob, just to stop spending, to to avoid shops, avoid the internet, avoid wasting our money on things we don't really need? Yeah, I mean, it's Escapology 101. I think, as I was saying, it's a very individualistic thing. It's something that you can actually do yourself today. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have to do these things. But actually, if you sit down with a paper and a pen and you work out the actual cost of living to you, it's really not going to be that much. Uh, and so you probably won't have to work the hours that you're currently working in this, in some job that you despise is <laughs> basically the idea. And it's sort of been able to build this battery of wealth and actually been able to say, no, thank you. I don't want to accept this work. 
that's extremely empowering. And it's the kind of power that most people just don't have uh, simply because they've been told again and again, no, you need these things, you know, and actually that's, it's not really true. If you sit down and work it out, your cost of living per month can actually be quite small. Yeah, and um, a lot of people will be watching this and saying, oh, I need money to do the stuff that I love to do. But you have some, mm -hmm. some interesting suggestions in the book. Um, one of them I really liked. Uh, you suggest that we should walk more. Uh, you, you write, a friend introduced me to a Latin phrase, solvitor ambulado, meaning it is solved by walking. Most things mm -hmm. are. If I have a problem, I usually solve it by walking. Either I walk to get away from the problem directly, or I walk as a way of mulling the problem over, eventually returning home with something like a solution. And of course, the beautiful thing about walking is it's free. Exactly. It, it goes back, we were talking about Epicurus. Walking is a perfect example of a simple pleasure. It's a pleasure in its own right. It costs you nothing in terms of money. It costs the environment nothing. You know, it, it doesn't pollute to go for a walk. Um, and what, what, what it says there in the book, that's it in a nutshell, because it really is solved by walking. There's something about going out there, embracing the elements, seeing what other people are doing, seeing what's happening in nature. You know, as you're walking, you'll see birds, you'll see insect life, all of these wonderful things that are happening. And that just sort of pulls you out of your problem. So if your problem at home was, I don't know, maybe financial or creative, you know, it, I quite often do it as a way to solve a creative problem. So I'll be writing a book at home and I'm struggling with a paragraph or with a particular train of thought. Sitting there on your chair and struggling through it is not the solution. And actually that, that usually is the solution that workplaces and the consumer economy, you know, it's like, you know, uh, it's the Protestant work ethic again, isn't it? It's nose to the grindstone. You go and figure this problem out and don't come out of that room until you solve the problem. Well, that's not true at all. Go for a walk, feel the wind on your face, and it just completely changes your inner mood. It's just the most beautiful thing. So yeah, that little phrase, solvita ambulando, I think of that all the time because it's almost it's almost miraculous. You go outside, you walk. There's something about once the blood is pumping, it just completely changes the internal climate of your of your brain. And then suddenly you go, oh yeah, that was it. And all you needed was this sort of cleansing of the mental palate. Basically, that's all it is. Yeah, nice walking, walking, it's it's practically guaranteed. You know, you don't want to come and say, hey, this is the silver bullet solution, but actually walking. It really is. It's the solution to just so many problems. And it also connects you to the rest of the world you were talking about. Is, in, is escapology an individualistic solution? Well, it is in that you can do it yourself. But something like walking, it, it sort of solves so many problems for you. But at the same time, you're also connected to the rest of the human world and the rest of nature as well at the same time. It's just a great way of pulling yourself out of whatever your current problem is. Yeah, and some places, of course, Rob, are nicer to walk in than others. You're in Glasgow. I'm not sure what that's like to walk around with, particularly in February. Mm. But one of the things I liked about your book were your, was your, were your descriptions of Montreal, which is a place I think you live part of the year. Um, why is Montreal a great stage, platform to escape? What is it about Montreal that you like so much? <laughs> I'll have to be careful here in case the, the people of Montreal take issue with this, but I do find the Protestant work ethic hasn't really taken hold <laughs> in Montreal in a way that it has, yeah, perhaps yeah, no, in, no, no in, French in, the rest, jokes, right? in the rest of North America and the rest of Europe. No, no lazy French jokes on this show, Rob. 
No, absolutely not. Uh, but there is a certain kind of um, laissez-faire attitude and almost all of my friends there, they've got some kind of, um, some sort of scheme going on. You know, it'll be like, I know there was a guy who was a cinema projector and that was literally the height of all his ambitions. He said, I just don't want to do anything else. I'll do this for the rest of my life. And that's actually a very rare thing to, to, to find. Like, I don't know anyone in Britain or uh, or in North America generally who has an idea like that. It's just, no, what I'm doing is qualitatively good. It's not making me tremendously wealthy, but it's good and I'm going to carry on doing it anyway. It's also just a lovely, peaceful environment. You know, it's a great city for walking. It's, uh, you know, you can go and walk on the mountain on Mount Royal. Um, and as you're doing that, you'll see people doing similar things to yourself. You know, there'll be people doing yoga. There'll be people practicing their circus skills. Uh, that's a very common thing to see. You'll see people with a hammock between two trees just resting. You'll see people kind of studying. You know, I saw a guy studying ants once. He was actually, he'd, he'd come out with a small shovel and he'd leave it up a, a wedge of turf on the mountain. And he was literally studying just ants, like the antics of ants. And that's kind of... Uh, Glasgow's a good city for walking as well, but not for that reason. You, you, you don't see people digging up the ground and looking for ants here. This is a much more sort of um, uh, an urban mindset. And I, I love that as well. I like to go out to the very edges of the city and kind of sense the change in atmosphere when you get out there. I think serious urban walkers call that um, an edge land. There's this idea of psychogeography. There's this whole school of, you know, what walking does to the mind. Well, um, well can, guys like Will Self, I think. Uh, Will, Will Self, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, so if you want to escape, uh, I think um, uh, Robert Ringham is offering you a route out. We can all become Houdini if you read I'm Out, How to Make an Exit, if you want to exit from uh, what he uh, what he imagines, at least, is this padlock of modern life, bureaucracy, work, consumerism, our own stupid brains. A uh, great book, a very easy read and a, and a fun read and, and I think an enlightening one in many ways. It, 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 it brings to mind um, uh, in many ways, um, it brings to mind uh, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber, which I know uh, Rob likes. Uh, Graeber unfortunately died last year. What else should people be reading, uh, Rob, in addition to Graeber's book and, and your new book to, to make sense of the world and perhaps to escape, to become Houdini's? Mm, I, I would actually say that um, trying to make sense of these things and how to escape should just really be a very small project. That shouldn't, that you don't need to read too much about it. You read I'm Out, read David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs. Um, but to be honest, you should just be enjoying life and not worrying too much about these things. So uh, I would say, in fact, if we just, I'm gonna bring you over to my bookshelf now. And I'm going to bring out some things that I feel passionate about. This is David Sedaris. You'll have heard of him, of course. Yes. A wonderful um, orator and humorist. Uh, this is his diaries, volume one. I would recommend that wholeheartedly. It's quite a new book. It's maybe, maybe a year old. Um, and it's just, again, it's a bit almost like walking because it just gets you kind of out of yourself and seeing the humorous side of life. And for the same reason, this is an old book that nobody cares about, but this is the complete Fran Leibowitz, uh, a New York writer, uh, again, a humorist. And she just talks about sort of the, the basic things of modern life, you know, transitional spaces, uh, dentists' waiting rooms, um, the, you know, the New York metro, the tube, 
sorry, Subway in New York, whatever, uh, all that kind of thing. That's, that's really the stuff of life. And finally, I'd mention George Orwell's diaries. These aren't complete, but they're from the kind of most important and most noted parts of his life. So World War II, Spanish Civil War, down and out in Paris, in London, that kind of thing. And when he was uh, writing 1984, all this stuff, it's just a beautiful, beautiful way to get inside the minds of, I was going to say the minds of people you admire, but it, it's the fact that you admire them isn't even that important. It's the minds of others. You know, these books, they kind of let you into that. It's a great privilege. It's a wonderful thing that we have books like this as a matter of record. Uh, and that would be what I would recommend. Diaries and short essays uh, from people. And it's a, a window into the minds of others. That's what I would recommend. Well, I appreciate your time, uh, Rob. You've given us a window into your mind and uh, into your new book. I wish you. I do, I do. I do that a lot. You're always welcome into my into my yeah, mind through, uh, through my books. Color in future, uh, but only uh, through my books. Light and color in your Glasgow study, uh, but it's got a good honor, fun to talk, and I wish you a very happy, healthy 2021. Lots of walking, I hope, this year, Rob, and we'll Absolutely. have you back on the show very soon. So thank you again. Thank you. thank you, Andrew. Take care now. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.